Welcome into the Art Gibbs Sports Business Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And in this episode, we're joined by a very special guest, former owner of the Seattle Mariners, the founder and CEO, chairman of the board of MS Corporation, involved in radio, TV, and as I mentioned, the Seattle Mariners, uh, Jeff Smullyan. And he's written a book, uh, Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down, The Ups, Downs, and Reinventions of an Entrepreneur. It's a fantastic read. I believe it officially comes out uh, December 6th, but it is a page turner. Uh, all the stories uh, throughout a long business career and, uh, of course, dives deep into radio, broadcasting, as well as sports team ownership, which is extremely fascinating to me and I'm sure uh, many of you all as well. So without further ado, here's the interview with Jeff Smullyan. Enjoy. All right, Jeff. Well, thanks for coming on, coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And um, what made you uh, do a memoir at this time? You know, write this book. Why? Why a book? And and why now? Well, I the, the genesis of the book was I had driven my now eighteen year old daughter to school um, all the time from kindergarten until she fired me when she got her driver's license. Um, <laughs> And we would just talk about life. I'm, I'm one of those fathers who just talks about lessons I've learned and stories. And one day she said, Dad, I love these stories. Nobody would ever believe half of them. Um, you got to write them down. Uh, so when COVID came about, I just decided to write. Things are slower. And um, I wrote 300 pages uh, in about 45 days. Um, wow. And just sent it to a couple of friends. And they both said, look, you have a book here. Um so next thing I knew, we, you know, got an agent, we got a publisher and, uh, and it's been a, a very, very enjoyable process. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I've, I've started digging into it. It is a, it is quite a read. It's, it's fast paced. Um, and, you. and you, you kind of open with, uh, your, your love for radio at an early age. Right. What, what drew you to radio? What were well, some of the I aspects like that a kid of my era who grew up with transistor radios under our pillow um listening to top 40 music and uh major league baseball games on the radio and just did that and always loved it always knew I wanted to be in it and always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and uh went to college at USC and law school there and then my dad talked me into coming home and ran the first radio station which is memorable because David Letterman was our midday guy um but you know always wanted to start my own company and I did and uh 40 some years later here we are yeah. and and uh, why not TV? It was kind of emerging at that time. And, you know, was was there something unique to radio that, that radio kind of... was more creative? You sort of had a radio station. It was a blank slate. You could be top 40. You could be hip hop. Uh, we we started the, the whole notion of sports radio, which when we did it was revolutionary with WFAN in New York. Um, so, you know, we really, you know, we're able to create all sorts of fun things. And, and with TV, you're sort of a, if you're a CBS affiliate, you turn up, open the switch and you get CBS programming or NBC or CBS. So I always thought it was more creative and always loved it. We did end up getting into TV. We owned 16 TV stations at one one time. So we were in TV a lot. Are there Are there aspects of radio and kind of the the podcasting scene over the last 10 years, are there any similarities, differences, like, uh, you know, cause it seems like kind of a same thing. You have kind of a creative blank slate and, yeah. you know, you can, 
get really into a topic or, you know, yeah, whatever. Radio, it's not as tight. Radio is sort of one to many. Podcasting is more of a one to one experience. Um, so I think radio and, and television over the year TV are sort of more broadly based. Uh, but I think we're getting into a more one to one time where people want that one connection which podcasting does, people do that with streaming to an extent. So I think the, you know, the question has always been the economics of these businesses. Um, are, are they economically viable? But that's, that's different than whether the consumer experiences is enjoyable. Sure. And what's your take on the economic viability from your experience? I think it's a tough putt. Uh, I've, I've been streaming audio for a long time. We've seen the podcast business there are some podcasts that have a massive audience uh, and they can make some money that is Joe Rogan's come to mind or, um, you know, the daily with the New York times. Um, but, it, but it, but in, in most instances, it's, it's tough to get a gigantic audience. Yeah. Yeah. So what, um, what led you into kind of the sports world? Did you always sort of dream of, uh, you know, owning a team or being involved with a team or was well, it, how did that come about? Always loved it. Um, we, um, I was, listen, every kid in my era was a baseball fan um, and always loved it. When we bought the, the, the station in New York, which became WFAN, um, we had the Mets and I got to know the Mets people. And um, uh, we were sort of known as the people who turned around radio stations in New York and L.A. and Chicago and San Francisco and Washington. And um, and people said, you know, you guys are really good marketing guys. The Mariners really need some help in marketing. The team's for sale. And we looked at it. I'd always loved Seattle. Um, so we had a lot of fun with it you know, for a while. Did you when you when you were going into that, did you value it based on your uh, radio experience and, and purchasing stations or was it totally different or did you have advisors in that area or what, what no, was that process like? Yeah. yeah. We had a lot of advisors. We looked at the, the revenue, overall revenue, and, and we had always bought radio stations that were sort of bottom of the market and then said, if we do this, this, and this, can we get it into the, at least the third quartile or the second quartile. And we've been successful at that. We knew the Mariners were by far the, the smallest revenue team in baseball. And, uh, and we said, if we do this A, B, C, D, and E, um, we can make it more competitive and, and make the economics work. So talk a little bit about that. When you got in there, what, what kind of stuff did you do? Was it um, all about the broadcasting or game day stuff or everything? It was everything. We really, we really approached the game day experience. I'm very proud that the things we did then were kind of revolutionary. Um, we had video clips, we had situational music. Um, I can remember one thing we did, uh, which we thought would get us in trouble. Uh, Louis Polonia played for the, for the, the Yankees. And before he had played with the Brewers and he'd had sort of a, an underage relationship with a young woman. And we, when he came up to bat, we played, she was just 17, you know what I mean? And things like that. Um, so we did a few things like that, but, um, but we also did also singles contests at the ballpark and post-game concerts and uh, um, all sorts of funny movie clips. Um, we, we played the, the John Belushi clip from Animal House when we were behind in the ninth inning, you know, when, was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor, things like that. We, we did all sorts of fun and, and we really did. A, I was very proud of what we did with attendance and, 
and TV ratings went up. But but the economics of the game kept getting further away from Seattle. We never had a cable contract, and there was never really a great love of Major League Baseball by the corporate community in, in Seattle or the government. Interesting. And so a- after that, you uh, where did you go from there from like a sports perspective? You, did you have – I know that, that, that they tried to uh, – Stern reached out to you for – potentially turning yeah, around a had, basketball team we never really did any more in sports we uh we should have but we had a chance to take the rockets over we didn't we bid on the um we bid on the on the nationals in washington we're going to bid on the dodgers so we never did it was sort of a circuitous path of why we didn't get back into sports um but my first love was always broadcasting um and i as i told david stern when we sold the mariners um amos had had problems um, and so I said, my job was really to fix, you know, fix Amos. That was my job. Yeah. yeah. And what do you think about the uh, sort of the, some of the current valuations, you know, you see in the, even in just a short time, a couple of years, you know, with the NFL, especially you've yeah. got these, uh, you know, it used to be 2 billion was a lot. And now every team's 5 billion and all that kind of stuff. Is that, is that driven by sort of ever growing broadcast? numbers and do you it's think those really, will continue I, I or is other things i talk about it in the book there's three major reasons for it one is we have more billionaires in this country than we used to have um so 30 years ago you may have had 50 billionaires today you've got 800 billionaires um and some of them have have made so much money that they've been able to bid up these prices uh there used to be a relationship between the cash flow or the potential cash flow and what a purchase price was but when you see things like, um, you know, the Clippers going for over $2 billion, a franchise that never made any money. Now you see the Broncos at four and a half. You'll probably see close to six for the Redskins. Now, make no mistake, the NFL is staggeringly profitable. And when you see that the average with every NFL team will make over $400 million in their new TV contract, you, you can see that with a salary cap of maybe 230 or 240, uh, that before you sell a ticket or anything, these franchises are wildly valuable. And people who have the wherewithal don't mind spending the money to be in, in a business that's that profitable. And they bid it up like crazy. And do you th- is, does the NFL do something different from a broadcasting perspective than the other leagues? Or is it yeah, just a case of eyeballs? It, they had a lot more people watching. Yeah. Um, and they they really, you know, the, the rest of sports is challenged by uh, the cutting of the cord. Uh, you're starting to see that with the regional sports network struggling where, you, you know, three or four years ago, a regional sports network may have had a million people. Uh, they were all paying five or six dollars a month. Well, today they may be down to 700,000 people. And that ultimately will come in and hurt the ball clubs. Uh, it certainly hurt the regional sports networks, um, but the NFL has just been sort of the spiral. I mean, right now, before uh, before the, the the Sunday ticket deal, I think the NFL is up to about fourteen billion dollars per team. I mean, I mean, I mean, excuse me, fourteen billion dollars a year. Um, that's a staggering amount of money. Staggering. Yeah. And is there anything the so some of these other leagues can do or fledging leagues can do from a broadcast perspective that kind of in this new environment to get? Well, I think them? I think they're all trying different things. Um, but I think the thing is that the American public is sort of 
totally fascinated by the NFL. I mean, you see the NFL numbers, you know, whether it's Monday night or Sunday night or during the day, Sunday or Thursday, uh, they they're off the charts. You know, I think the top 30 programs in the United States on an annual basis are all national football league games. So that's, that's just a, a phenomenon far and away above anything else really in American life. Yeah. So what did, so as you were going through this, the Mariners and after what, what was some of the stuff that was happening in, in radio and uh, TV? I know you mentioned that you eventually went into TV more. Um, What, what kind of happened around that time and after the Mariners? Well, we went, we went back after the Mariners, you know, we, we had all sorts of things that happened toward the end of the Mariners. And and we've said, as say in the book, we just couldn't afford to lose $20 million a year running a baseball team. Uh, the radio business struggled. So my job when getting out of, out of baseball uh, was fixing Emma's, my company, which is why I turned David Stern down. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of, of um, you know, what we did, we did all sorts of things. We fixed our balance sheet, as you always have to do when you run a business. Then we went public and we gobbled up more stations. Uh, when radio valuations got crazy after the um, the Communications Act of 1996. That's when we said, gee, radio prices are too crazy. So we bought a lot of TV stations. And then we also went to international radio. So we've done all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah. And do you think what what's the next thing? Is it is it people purchasing, uh, you know, Internet properties or what? Well, we're looking at all sorts of things. We've sort of divested of our core broadcasting properties now. We have one FM in New York left, but uh, but other than that, we've really divested. Um, I think you know. I, I listen. The, the biggest challenge is finding things that make money. Streaming is all the rage in video, uh, but can't, you know, you you saw the turmoil at the Disney company where they lost a billion and a half dollars with Disney Plus last quarter. So there's a lot of things that consumers like. The question is, can they make money? That's that's really the the trick. Um, I, you know, we're we're looking at all sorts of things. We're having fun with all sorts of things. But I think, but I think the key is, um, you know, for example, in, in regional sports networks, you know, as you've seen, Curtis, people have cut the cord. And you know, I I used to give an example. The best way I can describe the economics of sports um, is that. I always use the example of an 85-year-old grandmother in, in Los Angeles who's paying had a, a bundle cable, you know, bundle cable, and she's paying $10 a month for ESPN, $6 a month for the Dodgers, and $5 a month for the Lakers, and $4 a month for the Angels, and a buck for the, the Pac-12 network, and, and, and she's paying $30 a month for sports, but she doesn't even know the Dodgers left Brooklyn. So... <laughs> The problem, and that is really the heart of sports, is that you had bundled cable and you had 100% of the population paying for what 30% care about. And as people break apart the bundle, either young people don't come in or old people pass away or cut the cord, those sports franchises that depended on 100% of the population paying for it now have to say, how do we rely on just the 30% that care? And that's why you see, um, you know, the regional network saying, "Okay, when the cable, when the when the bundle is cut apart, um, we'll have to pay or try to get people to pay for like the Yes Network, 
or if you live here in Bally Sports to watch the Indiana Pacers or yes, to watch the Yankees and Nets. Um, and the question is, you know, will they pay? That's the $64 question. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll, I'll leave. I'll, I'll make this the last question here. So you, you have a, cha- you have a chapter in your book. That's a, a no good deed goes unpunished. And that's like right. something my uh, mom used to always tell me how, um, what made you uh, find that to be true? Well, I had come up with the idea um, that the future of radio was going to be dependent on regaining portability. Um, like I said, I grew up in an era where the transistor radio changed radio listening forever, and every kid had a transistor radio. And then later, every kid had a Walkman, which was a stereo version of the transistor. And then kids had boom boxes. But, you know, by, by the last 15 years, people stopped listening to radio that way. And, and my point was that every smartphone had an FM radio in it. Um, and when you, I guess to give you the, the, here's the problem with streaming. If you got two minutes, I'll bore you with it. Go for it. Um, we used to have a radio station in Los Angeles, Power 106. And the cost to distribute our signal was $60,000 a year, which is the cost of the electricity for my transmitter. So for $60,000 a year, I could send a signal into every home in Southern California. I could reach one person or all 15 million with no incremental cost. But if I took my transmitter down and streamed, then I had to pay a data charge to reach every listener. And they had to pay a data charge to get my signal. And in addition to that, I had music cost, performance royalties that I didn't have over the air. So the difference in reaching with my station in Los Angeles, Power 106, over the air cost me $60,000 a year to reach the exact same listeners with the exact same content would cost me over $2 million a year through streaming. Well, that's why the economics of streaming not very good. So you can, yeah, I'm holding up my smartphone, you can you listen to any music streaming here, but there was an actual radio that would avoid all those costs. So my job was to try to get the industry united uh, uh, to to come together for that. And we have to read the chapters. A lot of crazy things happen. Yeah. Well, I encourage everybody to read the book. It's uh, coming out next week. I think you said Yeah, comes out uh, next Tuesday. Never ride a roller coaster upside down. Yeah. I think if people read it, they'll find it. It's a lot of fun. If you like the economics of sports and broadcasting um, you know, and podcasting and streaming, the book takes you through all that. But mostly what it does is the stories, the crazy stories that happened to us along the way and uh, and hopefully the lessons that you learn from them. Yeah, you learn the most from the stories. Right, hopefully. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. Curtis, and, my uh, pleasure. 